plate, you would think that eating an incredible homemade meal night after night after night would get old. No, you just keep getting better and better. <laughs> this is incredible. Thank you. Dad, can I have some more veggies, please? You bet. More veggies for the big guy. All right, whose turn is it to help me with dishes tonight? Me, 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 me. All right, you both can help me. Yes! I need a, a, a like a 20-piece chicken popper. I'm trying to win the food! Yeah. How many know? How many know that is pretty much sums it up right there. That's our families. And we have the ideal and then we have the real. And we're going to talk in this series about how we deal with our real family. Uh, before we get to the message, actually, if you take out your Bibles now, you'll be ahead of the game. Colossians chapter 1, that's where we're going to go. So turn in your Bibles to Colossians 1 or click on your phones or iPads, or iTablets, whatever you got. Um, Colossians chapter 1. We will be reading first from Colossians 3, and then we'll get to Colossians chapter 1. Secondly, happy Thanksgiving. That was pathetic. <laughs> Do you want us to have a happy Thanksgiving or not? Happy Thanksgiving. <laughs> How many of you love Thanksgiving? I just, this is my favorite day of the year. Football and food. It does not get any better than that. I believe that football and food were in the Garden of Eden. We lost those, but we're getting them back, praise God. Uh, I want to ask you a personal favor. Please, 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 don't go shopping on Thanksgiving. Now, these stores that are opening up at Thanksgiving night, it's ridiculous. It's, I think it's an abomination to everything that we hold dear about Thanksgiving. Stay at home. Enjoy your family. You got to build one of those sandwiches. You know what I'm talking about? You got to eat the food first, stuff yourself, feel regret, go watch football, and then go back to the kitchen and build that sandwich. Bread, turkey, cranberry sauce, leftover candy from Halloween, bread, <laughs> and, and just do it again and watch the night game. Praise God, that's what it's all about. Colossians chapter 1, we're going to start a series on the family. I hope you're ready, and I hope your heart is open to what God wants to say to you. Uh, th this is the thing about families. We all have an idea of what we want for our family. What's your idea? When you close your eyes and you think about what you want for your household to look like, what is it? And then secondly, where did you get that idea? Because those two questions are very important. What is it might be wrong. Because where you got it was wrong. There are two choices for every family in this place today. Two choices. And that's it. There's two. Number one, I can do what I want with my family. Or number two, I can do what God wants. Number one, what I want. And number two, what God wants. And the point of this whole series is to kind of move you and shift you from what you want to what God wants. 
Because God is the originator, the creator, the one who invented the idea of family. And he created it to operate a certain way. Now, it's very hard to move from what I want to what God wants. It's very hard. Everybody struggles with this. No matter where you come from, how long you've been in the church, or your nationality, you know, everybody, it seems to me like every nationality just says that it's your nationality is the one who has the hardest time adjusting. You ever hear that? Like, oh, I just can't adjust because I'm, I'm Italian. And then the, the Irish are like, well, I just can't adjust because I'm Irish. You know, it's just in our blood. Like, so I guess when you get an Irish and Italian to marry each other, just expect World War III, right? <laughs> but there, everybody struggles with this process of moving from what I want to what God wants. And here's why. I know two things about everybody in this room and about myself as well. Uh, the first thing that I know about you is you didn't get to choose the family you were born into. No, you had no say in that matter. God said, here. And you might not like it and you might love it. It doesn't matter. You didn't choose it. But the family that you were given, whether foster family, adopted family, or natural family, single parent family, or multiple parent family, whatever, that was given to you, and that was chosen for you, and then it started to create in you a certain ideal. And you started to maybe look at other families and think we need to be more like that, or maybe you started to really enjoy your family and said, I want my family to be just like the family I came out of. And so number one, you didn't get to choose the family that you came from. Number two, the thing that I know about everybody in this room is that you have an idea about what your family should be. And here's what I know. You truly believe that you are the smartest person in your family. And if everybody would just listen to you, the family would finally work. Yeah, see, someone said amen. Someone had the guts to say amen to that. Pray for him. Um, everybody's like this, though. Everybody feels like they know what's best for their family. Where'd you get that idea? See, some of you got that idea from your family because you loved your family. And some of you got your idea because you hated your family and you idolized this other family that you knew growing up. Everybody had that family, like that family that was down the street, your friend's family that you're like, oh, why couldn't I have been born to those parents? They let them play Nintendo until 3 a.m. They let them eat cereal for dinner. They let them jump on the couch like it's a trampoline. What a cool family. And then our tastes change, and we grow up, and we start to idolize another different kind of family, a family down the street from us, a family with a bigger SUV or the bigger TV. And we start to think on the outside, they look like the perfect family. And here's what you need to know about that. It's called the comparison syndrome. And the comparison syndrome is a trap because any family can look good on the outside for a few moments. Any family can come to church on Sunday and smile and shake your hand and say, God bless you. And then get into their big honking SUV and tear each other's hair out. It's the reality. Anybody can look good on the outside. So 
Some of you, though, that's the trap that you're in. You're into the comparison syndrome because you don't want to be like your family. Some of you, you're here today. You're single, and you're like a blank slate. You're ready to hear what God wants your family to be like in the future. And so you're going to take copious notes during this series, and you're going to write it all down, and you're going to have the roadmap to a successful family so that when you finally get married, you will be able to direct everybody absolutely perfectly. And the problem is you're going to marry somebody who's got their own set of notes. And that's when the fun begins. And families are usually frustrating because we come from a certain family and we have this idea of family, and you take two people with those two different perspectives and you lock them into this new family, and everything gets frustrating. <laughs> and, and, and some of you, I, I feel bad for you because you're just refusing to do family in any way according to God's plan. Like, you're just going to be stubborn about it, and you're going to do it your way because your way is better, and you have just convinced yourself that, that, that God's way is archaic and old-fashioned, and it doesn't work. And so you're living together out of marriage, and you're having sex before marriage, or you're in the hookup culture trying to figure out who you should be with long-term. And what you're really doing is you're just adopting the philosophies of this world. You're not getting those ideas from your grandfather, and you're not getting those ideas from God. You're getting those ideas from the sitcoms and the television shows and your friends in college and your friends in high school, and you've adopted these ideals, and you put them into practice. And what you've really said is to God, you've said, God, I truly believe that my way is better than your way. And the problem is you are the only one that's going to pay for that. It's going to hurt you most. So how do we deal with our real family? Some of you also think that the Bible gives us an illustration of the perfect family. And as soon as you turn and open the Bible, you realize that there isn't a good family to be found in the Bible. Like some people say, let's get back to Bible times. Have you read the Bible? <laughs> because it does not start good and it does not get good. It's frustrating. Like God, God had a great start for the family. He did. He, he started it right. He put it together perfect because he's God. He knows exactly what he's doing. Created heaven and earth. Created the earth, the sea, the, the trees. All the beauty of creation, and he said, it's good. Created a man, put him in a garden, said, it's not good that he's alone. Let's create a family. Gave him a wife, brought them together, put them together, said, now I've joined you. Don't separate. And they are in bliss. Adam and Eve lived in perfect harmony with each other in the garden. Fruit grew on the tree and never fell. There was no rot, there was no bugs, there was no termites. It was beautiful, it was perfect. And there was no cold weather. Because winter is from the devil. <laughs> and they, they lived in perfect harmony with no shame. They were naked before each other. And felt no shame. And Adam really appreciated the naked part. 
And that perfect ideal and that perfect family lasted for exactly two chapters. And Genesis chapter 3 comes in and she eats the fruit and she hands it to him and he eats the fruit. And, and from that moment all hell broke loose and family has been a frustration ever since. Adam and Eve didn't have a perfect family. They gave birth to two sons. Can you believe that the first two people ever born out of the first two, one of them killed the other one? First homicide occurred in the first family. Crazy, right? I mean, he didn't learn that from TV. He didn't learn that from the video games. It was in his heart. And Adam and Eve's family weren't perfect. Then, then you think, oh, maybe, maybe Abraham's family. That, that was probably, let's be more like Abraham. Are you, are you kidding me? Abraham sells his wife up the river twice to save his own neck. God has to save him by speaking to the king who he gave his wife to to say, pretend you're my sister on two occasions. This is what Abraham did. Ladies, never pray that your husband is more like Abraham. And then he had sex with her slave, her servant. And from that moment on, there would never be peace in the Middle East because of that one bad decision. Not Isaac and Rebekah. You would think Isaac and Rebekah would have a chance. Isaac was the miracle child, the child born in their old age, the child born when Abraham was 100 years old. Of course, this child is from God. No, he did the same thing Abraham did. He sold his wife up the river and pretended she was his sister so he could save his own neck in a foreign land. God saved him out of that as well, saved him out of that bad decision. And then they had twin sons, and then they played favorites with their sons. He loved Esau, and she loved Jacob. And ladies and gentlemen, if you're parents, the worst thing you can do with your kids is play favorites. Causes friction for the rest of their lives. And they can feel it, even if you don't say it. And so Jacob grows up, he doesn't have a perfect family either. In fact, his family is probably the most jacked up in the entire book. And it starts with him having 12 sons with four different women, two wives two concubines, and 12 sons. And let's just say, point a note here about the Bible. When the Bible tells us about men having multiple wives, listen to me, some people make a fatal mistake and say, you see, the Bible promotes polygamy. No, it doesn't. The Bible shows you what happens when you have two wives, and what happens is bad. Because Jacob's family's a mess. He favorites one of the sons, just like his father did with his family. The 11 sons conspire, they hate that son, they sell him into slavery, and then they take the robe that he gave him, dip it in blood, and come home and say, someone must have devoured him, someone must have killed your favorite son, here is his cloak. And for 22 years, Jacob lives believing that his son has been killed. For 22 years, his 11 other sons show up at the dinner table, and no one says a word. For 22 years, they let the old man think his son is dead. What kind of a family is that? That's the kind of family that the Bible shows us, and we're not even out of Genesis yet. <laughs> That's just the first book. The first civil war happens in Israel. Do you know why? Because a son turned on his father. David and Absalom, the first civil war happens between a father and son. And even Jesus, even Jesus, the son of God, had a 
problematic family. I mean, when he was 12 years old, they left him in the temple. How do you do that? Like, we love your kids. We want them in our children's program. We're appreciative of that. But if you leave them behind, we're giving you a call. And they left him and traveled a day and finally realized, where's Jesus, you know? <laughs> Crazy. When he grows up, when he grows up, he begins his ministry, he starts preaching, and he goes home, and people are packing into the house. The Bible says in Mark chapter 2 that his mother and his brothers went to go get him, and it says these words, because they reasoned that he was out of his mind. That was his family. In John chapter 7, it says that his own brothers harassed him and did not believe in him. This was Jesus' family. And from Genesis 3 through the rest of the Bible and even till today, families have been frustrating. Because we're all in this tension between what I want and what God wants. Now what the Bible does tell us is what God wants. The Bible does give us a plan for the family. And that's found in several passages. But the one I want to show you is found in Colossians chapter 3. And, and here's the plan for the family from God. Colossians 3. You don't have to turn there. Stay in Colossians 1. We'll get there in a moment. But here's what it says. The plan for the family from God. Verse 18, Colossians 3. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey your, in everything, those who are your earthly masters. Now, bondservants are like employees, and masters in this context are like employers. And it says, obey them in everything, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for man, knowing that from the Lord you will receive inherit the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Now, we're not going to touch those verses today. I'm just going to put it out there, and we'll get to them later on in this series, but we're not going to look at them today because we need to discuss something about these verses before we actually get to these verses. There is a foundation that has already been laid in the book of Colossians upon which Paul has built these rules and guidelines for the family. And we do a disservice to ourselves and to the family when we ignore the foundation on which these words are founded. Because what we do oftentimes is when we need help in the Bible and, and, and we think, okay, God, give me a word. Tell me what to do with my family because it's really frustrating and I don't know what to do. And so we'll look up passages and we'll say, okay, what do you want me to do? And we'll find Colossians chapter 3, verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands. And we'll be like, booyah. <laughs> Read it and weep, honey. <laughs> That's from God. All the while forgetting, husbands, that the first word of the verse is wives. That verse wasn't written to you. It was written to wives. You worry about your verse, let her worry about her verse. Amen. <laughs> we'll talk about that later. So, so, so what's the foundation that, that, that these words are built on? We have to talk about that. 
we have to talk about the book of Colossians. Colossians is a book, is a letter written from the Apostle Paul to a church in Colossae. This little struggling church is a small town, small city, and a small group of Christians. And they're new to the faith, they're new Christians, and they don't, they love Jesus, but at the same time, people are coming into the church and they're starting to add teaching on top of the gospel of Jesus. And so Paul writes Colossians to refute that teaching. So some of the teaching was you need to believe in Jesus and you need to deny yourself a bunch of stuff. You need to live this aesthetic lifestyle and poverty is righteous and so don't touch, don't handle, don't taste, don't do things that other people do because that's how God will be pleased with you. And it's an additive to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then some other people came in and said, no, 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 you don't, you don't just need to believe in Jesus. You also need to practice some of the rituals and the laws of the Old Testament. You need to get circumcised if you're a man. You need to do the sacrificial system. You need to do the whole thing with your hair and all that stuff. And, and everything needs to be according to that as well as Jesus. And then some people came in and said, no, those two things are wrong too. And what you really need to do is believe in Jesus, but then you need to deny yourself any uh, affection or attachment to this world because this world is bad and evil and wrong. And you need to ascend to this higher mystical experience. And that's how you please God. And these are the three philosophies that are coming into the church of Colossae. And Paul writes this letter to tell them philosophies do not work. Only Jesus works. The formula could be like this. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. But Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That's the theme of Colossians. That's the foundation. And the theme of Colossians could be summed up in one phrase. The supremacy of Jesus Christ. Did you see even in chapter 3 when he's talking about the family, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Children obey your parents, this pleases the Lord. Work at your office for the Lord. You're serving the Lord. It's all about the Lord. Jesus is everything. Jesus is the only thing necessary for your life to add up to what God wants it to be. And that has not been done by you and you did not attain it, God willfully and freely gave it. So adding anything to Jesus messes you up. And that's the foundation. Now, let's look at the verse I want you to look at. Verse 15 of chapter 1. The supremacy of Jesus. Here it is. Verse 15. He, this is Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he, this is Jesus still, he is before all things and in him all things hold together and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Wow. That is probably the most powerful 
Christological statement in the entire Bible. By Christological, I mean this is who Jesus is. And what astounding words and phrases Paul uses to describe who Jesus is. And if we're going to build a foundation for the family, we have to know not what we should do first, but who Jesus is and what Jesus did for us first. Because most of us have it backwards. And we got to come back to what God did. So let's talk about who Jesus is. Number one, if you're taking notes, Jesus is God. He is the image of the invisible God. For all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus. Jesus is not a religious reformer. Jesus is not prophet. Jesus is not rabbi. Jesus is not teacher. He is not the founder of Christianity. No. No, no, no. Jesus is God. Do you want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. He is everything that God is. And, and when we talk about the Trinity, we, we, we tend to think the Trinity is like this pie. And, and God the Father has the biggest piece of the pie. God the Holy Spirit has this piece. And Jesus has this piece. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that everything in God fully dwells in Jesus. He's God. Number two, Jesus owns everything. Jesus owns everything. That's the meaning of the phrase that he's the firstborn of all creation. The firstborn child in the Hebrew context, in the ancient world, the firstborn child wasn't necessarily the child that was firstborn. It was the child that the father chose to give all his possessions to, and then that child would divide up the possessions to the family. This is the meaning of firstborn of all creation. Jesus owns everything. Jesus owns you. Jesus owns your family. Jesus owns your wife. Jesus owns your girlfriend. Jesus owns your car. Jesus owns Jupiter. Jesus owns Saturn, both the planet and the car company. <laughs> Jesus owns everything. It's all his. This is so important to understand because your family is already possessed, not by you, by Jesus. Number three. Everything is created by Jesus. Did you see this? For by him all things were created. For by him all things were created. We have this phrase in John chapter 1 verse 3. I want to read it to you. This kind of backs up exactly what Paul says. It says, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus made you. Jesus made your spouse. You ever have a problem with your computer and then you call the manufacturer? I had to do that with my computer and I'm an Apple user. It was actually a strange experience. And uh, I had to call them because they know how to operate the computer. Do you ever feel like the people in your, in your family are broken and you need some technical support with them? The manufacturer is Jesus. And he's your manufacturer as well. And you will never know how to handle your family until you understand the manufacturer is a guide and, and instructions on how to deal with them. He created everything. Number four is, I love the best, because it says this, everything is created for Jesus. All things were created through him, and say the last two words with me, and 
for him. I love that. You are created for Jesus. Because we all have this thing in the back of our minds, this question, this little deep down, big philosophical question. And the question goes like this, why am I here? And at some point in everybody's life, you ask this question. And if you haven't asked this question of your life yet, it's simply because you still think that having more stuff and getting more things and having a bigger house is going to fulfill your life. And it's not. And in his grace, God might allow some of you to get everything that you ever wanted in life and you will still come up and say, what's the point? Why am I here? I was listening to a pastor in Chicago who talked about an interview that he had with Bill Gates. Bill Gates, richest man in the world. And uh, he, he has changed his life recently. He has moved from acquiring and developing and owning and possessing, and now Bill Gates is in this moment of his life where he's just giving everything away. He's just giving money away, finding places to be ph- philanthropic, and, and not only is he giving his money away, but he's actually also giving away Warren Buffett's money. How many of you would love to give some of that money away? And he's just going like, he's just totally changed. He used to acquire, now he's giving. And, 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 Bill, and, and, the, and the pastor asks Bill, what happened? Why did you make this choice to start, stop acquiring and start giving? And, and, and Bill Gates said, I had so much money and I had acquired so much stuff and I had so much in my name that I got to a point where I finally just asked myself, what is the point? And I had to give it away. And that's great. That's a great start. That's a great thing to do. But listen, it falls far short of the reality of your life. You are created for Jesus. This is the wonderful thing about the Bible. The Bible answers the question to why am I here? You are here for Jesus. Your family is here for Jesus. The point of your life is not to have and to hold. The point of your life is not to gain and and accomplish. The point of your life is to know Jesus, your creator, your founder, your manufacturer. This is why Paul was saying in Philippians chapter 3, 8, he says, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. He says, for his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Jesus. And at some point in your life, you're going to ask yourself that question or you already have asked that, that question. Why am I here? And the reason is you are here to know Jesus Christ. And nothing in this world will fulfill you, complete you, make you whole, make you satisfied apart from him. Number five, Jesus holds everything together. Paul says that in him all things hold together. Jesus is the atomic force that keeps those electrons orbiting around those neutrons and protons. That's why when you split an atom, it creates a chain, of, a chain reaction of events that split other atoms and creates this amazingly destructive, powerful force. Why? Because we are messing with the power of Jesus who holds it all together. He's the force of every inch of you. He's what holds your family together. He's what will hold you together. Number six... Jesus is most important. Here's what he says, the head. He's the head of the body, most important. 
He's the head of the body of the church, and he's the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, that, that in, what's the next word? That in everything he might be what? Preeminent. If you have your Bibles open, underline everything and underline preeminent. Preeminent is just a fancy word for saying most important. That in everything, Jesus is most important. And God, the Father, made Jesus most important. You don't make him most important. God did. I, I used to say this all the time to Christians. I used to say this all the time to people. I say, oh, if you would just make Jesus the most important thing in your life. Oh, just make him most important. Oh, just make Jesus most important. Beg it. Like, it's like we almost present Jesus as if he's up in heaven saying, oh, please make me most important. Please make me most important. Please make me most important. No, 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 no. Jesus is most important. And whether or not you agree with it doesn't change the fact that he is. See, all, all, the, all the deal is, is that, that if you believe Jesus is important, that's the most important thing, that's great, that's wonderful, that's where you should be. But if you don't have Jesus as most important in your life, I got news for you. The entire universe disagrees with you. He is most important. And when you don't make him or believe he's most important, the reality is, is that you're just off kilter. You're not pointing true north, and that's why life will never come together for you until he's most important, and you acknowledge it in your heart. Number seven, Jesus lays it all down for us. <laughs> you have to read the passage a little slowly to see what happens here, because Paul takes like this 180-degree turn in the text. And if you read it too fast, you miss it because he's been talking about how important Jesus is, how great Jesus is, how Jesus is everything and holds everything and created everything and everything is for Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And, 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 then, John, and then Paul says, in him all the fullness of God will dwell, verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And the reason why we miss what Paul has just done here is because we, we hold the cross to be sacred. Hospitals are adorned with crosses. Churches are adorned with crosses. People wear crosses. People tattoo crosses on their bodies. Crosses are everywhere. We, we think the cross is a sacred symbol. But when these words were written in Colossians chapter 3, the cross was nothing close to a sacred symbol. The cross was a symbol of judgment and death. The cross meant that somebody took you, nailed you, and killed you, and defeated you. That's what it meant. And so that's when you read the scripture now, you see that Paul's building this argument. Jesus, most important, preeminent, has everything, owns everything, created everything. It's all for him. And what he chose to do was he chose to set it all aside and put it over here for a, for a brief moment and come and empty himself and make himself nothing and be born in a manger and walk the earth for 33 years and then die a bloody criminal's death for 
you. And the picture and the foundation that Paul is painting for the family is that the most important being in the universe set aside his importance, his authority, his power to help you. To help you what? To help you be reconciled to God. What's that word mean, reconciled? Two-part word. Re, again, and concile, friend. Jesus left all of that in heaven to make you friends with God again. And that's how you build a family. This is how you build a family. Because if you're going to do family right, and if you're going to do family like Jesus does family, you're going to have to experience some pain. And you're going to have to willfully choose it. It's called commitment. Commitment involves pain. Right? We all love America. We all love the country. But the people who are in our armed forces on the front line are committed to it. The ones who come home in caskets were committed to it. The one who owned the universe committed to you. And that's how you build a family. I, I read this uh, in a book somewhere. I love this line. Here's what commitment means. Commitment to anything means being willing to be uncomfortable for a while. The commitment is not that little fluttery feeling that you get when you first meet your future spouse. Thank God for that, because if that wasn't there, nobody would ever get together. But that's not commitment. And commitment is not the first year of marriage where you're figuring out how to stack the cups in the cabinet. <laughs> commitment is when you got no money, and you're making ends meet by stringing everything together by, 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 by shoelaces, and, and you're just barely making rent and barely paying your bills, and the kids are screaming, and the older kids are throwing stuff at you. And you haven't been on vacation for five years and you wonder to yourself, what is this all about? Maybe I made a big mistake. No, that is commitment. When you are willing to be uncomfortable for a while because at the cross, Jesus got uncomfortable for you. And none of you have any excuse if you're in Christ, because no one left more than Jesus. Nobody in the history of the world ever sacrificed more than Jesus. Nobody laid more on the table than Jesus. And so before we get to husbands being the authority in the home and walking around like, I'm the authority in the home, I'm the authority in the home, wives submit, wives submit, <laughs> you, you, you might be the authority in the home, but if you're going to be the authority like Jesus is the authority, then you're going to have to lay some things down to make peace and be uncomfortable for a while. In your notes, I have a line I want you to fill in the blanks. Jesus freely went from everything to nothing at the cross for those whom he chose, for people he chose to love.
And let's just clear something up here real quick, real quick, and I'm almost done, I promise. Jesus did not go to the cross because you were cute. Jesus did not go to the cross because you earned it. Jesus went to the cross unconditionally. He freely chose to go. And so if you're going to make your family work, it cannot be conditional. And this is the deal I want you to make. This is the deal. This is the, this is the point of the message. The I deal is a deal you make with yourself today, now or sometime tonight when you're thinking about this message. Here's the deal. I will choose to give up what I want to help us become what God wants. What would your marriage look like if both of you did that? And what would your parenting look like if you did that? And I'm not saying that we got it down. We got to work this out. My, I got to work this out. Our leaders got to work this out. Everybody's got to work this out. But this is the deal you need to start making for yourself. Because if the most important being in the universe laid aside all his power and all his rights and all his privilege and all his power for you, and you realize that, how can we not do the same? This is how Christianity works. Christianity does not work by you stepping up your game and trying hard and then God checking out your stuff and saying, okay, you pass, I'll send Jesus for you. Christianity works by you realizing what God in Christ did for you and, f- and that becomes the launching pad for you to start doing it for other people. I choose to give up what I want to help us become what God wants. This is how Christianity works. 1 John 4.19, we love, why? Not because we're really trying hard to be good Christians, no. We love because he first loved us. He's a launching pad. That's why Romans 15.7 says, accept one another. Why? Because Christ accepted you. Accept one another. You got some people in your family that you don't like? Accept them. You got some people in your family who are struggling with sin and the sin is godless and you think, oh man, accept them as Christ accepted you. You got some people you need to forgive? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Why? Why? Because God in Christ forgave you. It's the launching pad. Just realizing what's already happened and living from that. Colossians 3.13, bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. That's the foundation for every family here and every future family here. The foundation is not rules and regulations. The foundation is revelation of what God in Christ Jesus did for you. And he is the only hope for your family.